United Nations building. Soviet Ambassador Fedorenko gives solid support to the United Arab Republic, accusing the U.S. of playing partisan politics and of backing Israel. He also demands the withdrawal of the Sixth Fleet from the Mediterranean. So far, no diplomatic solution. Shalom, Frivet. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director at Israel Policy Forum. And I'm Evan Gottesman, Israel Policy Forum's Communications Associate. Welcome to the Matzav Podcast. So the past two years have seen Russia suddenly jump back into the Middle East. In the fall of 2015, Moscow dispatched its military to Syria to shore up Bashar al-Assad's government, and the Russians have stayed there ever since. News over the past weekend that Russia could also gain rights to air bases in Egypt, another one of these one-time Soviet client states, means Moscow may be a long-term presence on Israel's borders. So there are no individuals better suited to explain the historical background of the current Russian intervention in the region and its ramifications for Israel than our guests today. We want to welcome to the podcast Dr. Isabella Guinor and Gideon Remez. They're both associate fellows at the Truman Institute at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Guinor was formerly the Soviet and Russian affairs specialist for Haaretz newspaper, and Remez was the head of foreign news for the Voice of Israel radio. Their previous book, Fox Bats Over Dimona, the Soviet's nuclear gamble in the Six-Day War, won the silver medal in the Washington Institute on Near East Policy's inaugural book prize competition. And their new book, The Soviet-Israeli War, 1967-1973, the USSR's military intervention in the Egyptian-Israeli conflict, was published in the United States in August by Oxford University Press. Isabella, Gideon, thank you for joining us. So, Isabella, Gideon, most people know that the Soviet Union backed up the Arab side against Israel. Here's Israeli representative Yosef Tekoa exchanging barbs with Soviet Ambassador Yaakov Malik at the United Nations in 1970. Soviet intervention has become a permanent and grim factor in the Middle East conflict, a force for war and not peace, a force for the pursuance of the Arab attrition war against Israel. Motion d'ordre, a point of order from the representative of the Soviet Union. I protest against these assertions on the part of the Israeli representative we're discussing the aggression of Israel and not the actions of members of the Security Council. But despite the obvious animosity in that back and forth, your book titles reference to a Soviet-Israeli war, that is the direct confrontation between Soviet and Israeli military forces, might throw a few of our listeners off. You're right that the title of our new book does cause a lot of raised eyebrows. People ask, what, a full-scale war between the Soviet Union and Israel? Well, uh, over the period that the book deals with, that is 67 to 73, over 50,000 regular Soviet servicemen uh, saw combat uh, on the Israeli-Egyptian front alone against Israeli forces, and they used and deployed uh, the latest Soviet weaponry, including uh, some systems that were still experimental and had been supplied even to the Soviets' own armed forces, let alone any of the satellites. So uh, that, in our opinion, justifies calling it a full-scale war. And indeed, at some stages, it made the difference. Uh, it uh, tipped the balance uh, in the Egyptian-Israeli confrontation along the Suez Canal in Egypt's favor. Uh, so that uh, we consider it to have been a major Soviet intervention, 
indeed the largest such intervention by the Soviet Union outside the Warsaw Pact until the invasion of Afghanistan in 79. Interesting, but 50,000 Soviet troops is a lot more than the Russians have in Syria today, and yet it's pretty common knowledge that Russia is in Syria right now, whereas the Soviet intervention in the Arab-Israeli conflicts in the 60s and 70s uh, that you both write about is less well known. What accounts for that disparity? Well, I would say that uh, you're a little bit uh, uh, thinking too much good about the Russian position in Syria because uh, it uh, repeats exactly the Soviet tactics during the uh, Israeli, Soviet-Israeli war. Nobody knows the exact numbers. Nobody knows uh, what is going on. And uh, also, the uh, same kind of deception is uh, used today as it was used in uh, those years, the 60s and 70s. Uh, for example, uh, we uh, were very surprised to discover that there are private... Uh, of military uh, army that uh, is uh, uh, working or is uh, acting in Syria uh, along the regular uh, Russian military. And uh, uh, any, uh, no, any promises or any uh, declaration on the Russian part of, uh, of uh, returning back to the, uh, Russia of some uh, of the numbers of soldiers or the, uh, uh, the airplanes has been uh, also following the, uh, the tactics, uh, tactics of the 60s. So what's the time frame we're working with when we talk about the, uh, the Soviet-Israeli war? We are now discussing the period between, including, but between uh, 1967 and 73, that is from the Six-Day War through the Yom Kippur War, and the number of 50,000 is the total of Soviet servicemen that, to the best of our knowledge, uh, passed through Egypt in that period. At the, at the peak in 69-70, there were about 20,000 at a time. There was an entire Soviet air defense division uh, stationed in Egypt. Uh, ultimately along the Suez Canal, operating the latest Soviet anti-aircraft systems uh, against Israeli aircraft and also uh, Soviet interceptor squadrons, uh, with a lot of other units there uh, as auxiliaries, uh, so that uh, the total number at one time was one division plus additional forces. Now, uh, to answer your question, why so little of this was known so far, what we encountered was a kind of perfect storm, because it was not only the Soviets who never confirmed uh, that they had regular forces in Egypt, in addition to advisors attached to Egyptian forces, which is a separate story. Uh, both the United States and Israel also tended to downplay it. Uh, the United States, first under the Johnson administration, which was already embroiled in Vietnam, and then under the Nixon administration, that is, under Henry Kissinger's stewardship, was trying so hard to promote detente that it was politically inconvenient for the Americans to, uh, to play up the Soviet involvement. And indeed, when Israel once tried in April uh, 1970 to decry publicly that there were Soviet regular forces operating against it in Egypt, the Americans slapped down the Israelis so hard that the Israelis never tried again. And Israeli censorship 
Even Blue Pencil mentions of Soviet uh, forces, Soviet missiles, Soviet aircraft in Egypt, and the Israeli media and Israeli official statements henceforth refla uh, referred only to Egyptian ones. Uh, now, it was only the, the, the developments uh, in uh, the Soviet Union 50 years, 40 years later, when the Soviet Union began to collapse, uh, that the veterans of uh, those operations in Egypt began to demand recognition, which they hadn't received before because their service had never been acknowledged. Uh, and it was their literature from their struggle uh, to regain the, those rights and privileges that they had as combat veterans, not only plain discharged soldiers, that gave us the large database that we have used to reconstruct what they actually did and how many of them there actually were in Egypt. This was an extensive literature that flourished for about 15 years between the collapse of the Soviet Union and the reestablishment of authoritarian rule in Russia under Putin. Um, there's the information that we have gained from this and uh, cross-checked against both Israeli and American documentation that has become available over the years uh, has really showed up the, the real dimensions of this Soviet involvement. Now, can you elaborate on any parallels that, that can be drawn from Soviet involvement in the Middle East in the 60s and 70s and Russian involvement today? Yes, yeah, so the, the, whole, the whole involvement, the, the Soviet involvement, the, the Russian inf involvement, I should say, uh, with the, the Iran-Syria-Hezbollah axis now, uh, continues the same basic elements of Russian strategy that go back not only to Soviet times, but even to Tsarist times. There are a number of central features of Russian policy and strategy in the area that they consider their legitimate sphere of influence and backyard, just as America can, uh, published the Monroe Doctrine back in the, in the 19th century, Russia considers the Middle East a vital area of its own interest. And uh, one of them is to establish uh, naval bases and other bases as well along the littoral of warm water in the Mediterranean without depending on passage uh, through the Turkish Straits. Another is establishing Russian patronage over the Christian holy sites in the Holy Land, that is Israel. Um, and uh, and the, the, the elements that have appeared later on uh, were also control of the energy routes uh, from the Middle East to Europe and elsewhere, uh, and establishing a, a presence on the southern flank of NATO and now the European Union uh, in order to, to counter American influence and American power as represented by the Sixth Fleet. All of these elements remain today. Now, these are grand strategy points you're talking about, the broader scheme of things, but Isabella had discussed earlier the tactics, the Soviet and, and Russian tactics were similar. Now, in terms of tactics, um, the fact that Russia has never had more than two or three rather feeble attempts at democratization, uh, the tactics have always been the typical ones that can be uh, utilized by an authoritarian regime, be it Tsarist, Stalinist, or Putinist. Uh, for instance, uh, the Russians have been always able to announce their moves, if they do at all, only when they're actually already in motion. 
when Putin spoke at the United Nations uh, that uh, certain conditions in Syria, that is, uh, the expected fall then of the Assad regime, uh, would demand their uh, intervention, uh, the forces were already on the way. And this is exactly what happened in Egypt uh, in 6970. Um, if you compare that to the United States, say, the invasion of Iraq and the Second Gulf War, it took six months between the American Declaration of Intent and its actual implementation on the ground. These are this kind of tactics, and Isabella also mentioned the use of, and now uh, they took the American uh, method of using civilian contractors, but always uh, using proxies. Uh, these methods have become very largely uh, similar uh, throughout the, the past century. Well, in terms of those deception strategies, your book discusses the ways the Soviet Union covered up its role in the Arab-Israeli wars in the 60s and 70s through these uh, troop rotations and redeployments that would mask the scale of their involvement in the region. And Russia seems to be going through many of the same motions today in the Middle East. Um, just last year, they had two of these George W. Bush mission accomplished moments where the Russians declared their work in Syria was over, they were leaving, and yet that was 2016, and we're now approaching 2018, and the Russians are still in Syria. So do you see that and uh, other instances in the current Russian intervention in the region as mirroring those cover-up tactics from 40, 50 years ago? First of all, I would like to add another example of the deception, which is concerning Egypt. And uh, if you remember, uh, Russia ordered in France two ships, uh, Mistral ships, that have been uh, denied aid because of the sanctions imposed on uh, Russia of, uh, after Russia annexed uh, the Crimea. Uh, a year ago, we were very surprised to see that uh, Russian Minister of Defense and the Foreign Minister were flying to Egypt uh, about supplying to, uh, to Mistral that Egypt was supposed to buy from France uh, that uh, paid to Russia a very huge sum of uh, fine because they didn't supply their uh, ships to Russia but sold them to Egypt. So uh, Russia were uh, conducting the negotiations with Egypt to uh, supply uh, communication and uh, arms uh, uh, fitting to both mistrials. Now we hear that this uh, Russian, you could call them advisors or technicians, uh, they are going to teach Egyptian sailors how to use the mistrials uh, and communic uh, Russian communication and uh, Russian supplied arms. So uh, it smells like, you know, buying under the table the mistrials by Russia, uh, that Russia paid uh, the money for mistrials through the Egypt bank or something like that. And now it is considered to be Egyptian ships in name only, I think. So don't you think it's a very nice uh, uh, case of deception? Uh, the Syrian situation has deflected attention 
from really the Russian reestablishment in Egypt. Now, two of the old Soviet bases have been reactivated, and from there the Russians are now operating with special forces to assist their men in uh, the Libyan uh, civil conflict. Um, and uh, now it was just announced last week uh, that the Russians are gaining free use of Egyptian air bases, which is exactly the kind of agreement they had with Nasser, the lady with Sadat's Egypt, in the 60s and 70s. Of course, it's mutual. The Egyptians are free to use Soviet, Russian air bases, too. I don't see for what. Uh, but it means that the, so the Russians are now gaining another strategic foothold uh, along the shores of the Mediterranean, uh, so that even if the exercise in Syria ultimately fails, uh, they have an alternative. But that Russian alternative in Egypt isn't as much of a threat to Israel as the people Russia is on the same side as in Syria, because there's no Hezbollah and there's no Iran in Egypt. I would not be so certain <laughs> of that, because uh, there is supposedly an Israeli-Russian arrangement for coordination of operations in Syria to prevent the clash. But even if the reports from last week that Russian technicians shot down Israeli missiles that were used in the latest attack on a potential Iranian base in Syria, even if they're not accurate, the very fact that this now can be imputed to Russia illustrates what we have been arguing for a long time. The Russians are now not actively seeking a confrontation with Israel. Uh, they have no reason to. But if push comes to shove, if they have to make a choice between Israel's interests and the interests of their more important allies in the Middle East, we have very little doubt whose side they'll come down on. Now, if there is a Russian intervention in the Middle East, uh, in any direction, the fact that it may have bases to operate from on both sides of Israel and not necessarily in favor of Israeli interests. Let's say it's not against Israel, but supporting parties that are not in Israel's best interest, then there's very little doubt that they will do so. Um, all these stories about Putin having a soft spot in his heart for Jews in Israel uh, are ridiculous in our view. Putin does not have soft spots for anyone. He operates in what he considers to be the best Russian interest, and the best Russian interest now is not necessarily congruent with the Israeli best interest. So that I would not trust this coordination with Russia uh, to be a guarantee uh, against any Israeli-Russian clash, and indeed there even may have been one already which still bears verifying, but sounds very concerning to me. A person who they worked for the Russian Ministry of the Foreign Affairs, and uh, he was speaking about uh, uh, a Russian and Iranian relationship in the Middle East, and his uh, his summing up was uh, quite pessimistic because, uh, uh, in his opinion, Russia and uh, Iran have much more joint interests uh, in the Middle East than uh, um, you know, Russia and the Eastern, for example. And in this, in this context, if it indeed is confirmed that President Trump has just now told uh, the Arab side, the Palestinians, Jordanians, and others, uh, that he is about to make some move, be it just a declaration that the United States recognizes Jerusalem, entire Jerusalem, as the capital of Israel, or actually moves the embassy there, um, 
This will arouse great rejoicing in Moscow because it will be pushing not only the Palestinians, but also their supporters right into the Soviet camp. Uh, sorry, the Russian camp, but there's not that much difference uh, because the Russians have proclaimed all along that they recognize or will recognize East Jerusalem as the capital of the future Palestinian state, which is the Palestinian position. Now, uh, the Russians have had a very tenuous claim on a share in the quartet, uh, you know, powers that uh, attempting to promote a Middle Eastern uh, peace arrangement um, by saying that they have warm relationships with everyone on both sides, including Hamas. Uh, now, now they will have a situation where most of the Muslim and Arab world are going to declare the United States as unqualified and unsuitable to be an honest broker, and that pushes the Soviets right into center, and the Russians right into center stage. Uh, and uh, the, in this respect, whatever uh, virtues uh, the American decision has, uh, it will be a great plus and a really uh, uh, an unearned an unearned benefit for the Soviets, uh, the Russians. Sorry, I keep making that confusion. Uh, the ideological cover from the ultra-religious, orthodox, Tsarist monarchy through the Stalinist dictatorship, communist dictatorship, uh, to uh, the present authoritarian Putin regime, the, the, the ideological cover has been very thin. Underneath it has been, on the one hand, the classic, unchanging Russian geostrategic interests, and on the other hand, the, uh, the undemocratic illiberal nature of all of these regimes. There has never been much difference between them in those respects. So as you've both expressed, uh, Russia is on the Iranian and Hezbollah side in Syria, and we've seen these Israeli airstrikes against Hezbollah and the Iranian positions in that country. And uh, Israeli Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman tweeted in mid-November that Israel won't accept an Iranian position in Syria, and it won't accept Iran's use of Syria as a forward base against Israel. And anyone who doesn't understand this should. How would you rate Israel's response here? Um, do you have recommendations? And what are the ramifications if it goes wrong, especially if the message isn't taken kindly in Moscow? Well, the direct response uh, to those Israeli declarations, and Lieberman's wasn't the only one, was uh, when Foreign Minister Lavrov said that Iran is legitimately in Syria because it was invited by President Assad, right? So the Russians recognized the, is, the, the Iranian presence in Syria as legitimate, and therefore it rejected the Israeli protests. Now the question is how far the Russians will put up uh, with Israeli military activity against the Iranians in Syria, particularly if that activity, activity happens, even inadvertently, uh, to strike at Russian forces or Russian advisors or Russian, even Russian-supplied armaments. Uh, I don't know. And I think it's a pretty heavy risk. Uh, because, again, the, the Russians may not directly attack Israel, but they may enable others to attack Israel. And ultimately, as I said, if push comes to shove, then chas v'chalila, heaven forbid, that we should see again uh, dogfights between Israeli and Russian aircraft, uh, or, or worse than that. Uh, but if things 
get out of control, it might even come to that at some stage. And I will tell, and I will add another prediction of ours, which is still way over the horizon, uh, but we still think it, it matters. And that is that in Israel, uh, people tend to point to the presence of one million, more or less, Russian speakers in Israel as a basis for Israeli-Russian friendship and cooperation. We see it quite otherwise, because several of the recent Russian interventions, be it first in Georgia in 2008, and then in Crimea, and now potentially in the Baltic countries, have been justified exactly by that argument that we are protecting the Russian-speaking communities there. And I would not put it beyond the Russians one day to uh, produce uh, an appeal by a self-appointed Salvation Committee of Russian speakers in Israel, rescue us uh, from the adventurous policies of the Israeli government. Um, that, as I said, is still way over the horizon, but we think the potential is there. That is certainly a more distant prospect if it happens at all. What would be a more immediate impetus for a direct clash? Well, the Russians tried to prevent, forcibly to prevent Israel from going nuclear in the Six-Day War. That was the subject of our first book. Uh, and that went terribly wrong for the, uh, for the Soviets. Uh, so uh, we thought that uh, the same Murphy's Law uh, applied uh, to any Israeli attempt to forcibly stop uh, the Iranian nuclear project. And um, so, but if Israel had at the time tried that, um, going to war in order to prevent a nuclear war, that is, opting for an, a, an immediate and certain disaster in order to uh, prevent a future possible one, um, then uh, I, I definitely think uh, Israel would have confronted uh, some Russian opposition as well, at least in the form of defenses uh, in Iran, anti-aircraft missile systems, and so forth. Uh, and again, if the Russians had been harmed there, then uh, that who knows what that might have led to. So if we have another situation like that, where Israel decides to engage militarily in order to turn back any real or perceived threat against Israel by an ally of Russia, then the potential there exists doesn't necessarily have to materialize, but the potential exists for a direct clash between Israel and, the so and Russia, just as Israel had with the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s, when it became a direct clash. And to return to the topic of our book, at that time, the War of Attrition, 1969-1970, ended disadvantageously for Israel because of the Soviet intervention, because the Soviet uh, SAMs, so surface-to-air missiles, were shooting down Israeli aircraft, and particularly the irreplaceable Israeli air crews, uh, at a rate that Israel could not sustain. So Israel was constrained to accept the ceasefire in August 1970, and could do nothing, nor could the United States do anything, when the Soviets and the Egyptians immediately violated it by advancing the missile shield as far as the Suez Canal, which created the precondition for the Egyptian crossing of the canal in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. That was a direct result of Soviet direct intervention in the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Soviets determined the, that outcome of the war of attrition. And a Russian input 
at this stage or at a future stage of the present situation could have a similar result. And Israeli policymakers must take that in consideration. We can make declarations about, you know, we will not put up with this and we will not put up with that. The question is what we will have to put up with, not what we would like to put up with. I think that's a really important message for Israeli policymakers. And with that note, I'd like to thank you, Gidon and Isabella, for joining us. It's our pleasure. Thanks very much and looking forward to the next opportunity. That was Dr. Isabella Guinor and Gideon Ramez. They're the authors of the new book, The Soviet-Israeli War, 1967 to 1973, The USSR's Military Intervention in the Egyptian-Israeli Conflict, out in the United States by Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can catch us next week and follow all of Israel Policy Forum's great work on social media. We're on Facebook at Israel Policy Forum, and on Twitter, at Israel Policy 4M. That's number four, letter M. So, Eli, I think it's safe to say that this has been a pretty heavy week in terms of political news out of Israel, and this was a pretty heavy topic. Most definitely, and I don't think things are going to settle down anytime soon. So I think it's only fair for our listeners to close out on a lighter but nonetheless related topic, Um, Eli, have you heard about how the Egyptian army band has a habit of butchering visiting uh, leaders' respective national anthems when they come to Cairo? When and why should I have heard of that? Well, it's only the hottest news out of the Middle East region. Well, let's give it a listen. Here's the Egyptian army band's rendition of the Russian national anthem. We'll catch you next week. (laughs) 